Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I write books about serial killers, and in 2010, one of my books was found at a crime scene in Cleveland. This was in January, during winter break at Cleveland State University, when the students were still away. A staff member who worked in the Viking Hall dormitory called police about a 19-year-old man who was suspected of keeping weapons in his room. Police got a warrant, searched his dorm, and inside they found a metal box. Inside that metal box was a 9mm handgun, two loaded magazines, and 50 bullets. Also in his room was a knife, a box cutter, a ticket stub for the movie Saw, and my true crime book, The Serial Killer's Apprentice. The TV news stations in Cleveland made a big deal about this, showing close-ups of my book, implying that perhaps this troubled young man was inspired by my writing. Could he be a serial killer? Tune in at 6 to learn the shocking truth. Most troubling was the spike in sales I got following these news reports. I did some soul-searching after that. Could I be somehow complicit in this kid's homicidal fantasies if he acted on them? Had my stories turned him on? The Serial Killer's Apprentice is a collection of a dozen true crime feature stories I wrote for the all-weekly newspapers in Cleveland. They include sad tales of abducted women, murdered drug dealers, and a serial killer from Akron who trained a young man as an apprentice in murder. If my book was all you knew about Ohio, if someone were to use it as, I don't know, a depraved Zagat manual, you would think it was the most dangerous place on earth, a place where bad guys can get away with anything. But that's not true. I've never been afraid while walking around downtown Cleveland. As a reporter, I understood how rare these awful crimes really were. I wrote about these murders and abductions only because of their rarity, their uniqueness. But collecting those stories into one cheap trade paperback, 
maybe it gave the wrong impression to impressionable young men. It's probably no coincidence that my next two books were works of fiction. I needed a break. There's this theory. It's called the Mean World Syndrome. It claims that the wrong TV shows and books and music and video games can create a false sense of the world by exaggerating dangers that might occur, but rarely do. They make us think that we live in a terrifying world and that we could be killed by a stranger at any moment, and it's only luck that keeps us alive one more day. But do we really live in a dangerous world? Or is that a lie? And if TV's to blame, what impact does social media have? This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sometimes, at the end, you can review a man's life and clearly see the chain of random events and circumstances that pushed him along to create a new idea. When we're in the middle of a life, events seem disjointed, like nothing connects. It's like we're the size of an ant, standing in the middle of an elaborate set of dominoes, and when they fall, we can't see the pattern forming around us. Because of this, we don't understand where our ideas come from when they pop into our heads, and so we have a kind of cockiness about them. We think we created them, so we copyright our ideas, we trademark them, we own them. But if you could see your life in four dimensions, like the Tralfamadorians, 
from Slaughterhouse-Five, that is, if you could see it all at once, you might discover that one seemingly insignificant event in your youth put you on a path to one day meet a man who told you something true, and how that conversation planted a seed of an idea into your head that germinated across decades before sprouting up in a dream when you were 40. Our brains are microprocessors, and our subconscious is always processing data. We are information collectors and extrapolators, and sometimes I wonder if consciousness is a trick or a virus, the ghost in the machine. Consider the life of George Gerbner. He was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1919. He was half Jewish, a student of literature and folklore, and he smartly fled to America after Kristallnacht. Maybe you've heard that word before, but do you know what it was? What it means? Kristallnacht. In English, we call it the Night of Broken Glass. Here's what happened. In the summer of 1938, Germany began deporting Polish Jews. Among this group was a married couple, Sendel and Riva Grinspan. They were loaded into a police truck one day and driven to a train station and told to get out of the country. They wrote a postcard to their 17-year-old son, Herschel, who was living in Paris. They had no money, they wrote. Could you please send us something so we can flee? Four days after receiving their postcard, Herschel bought himself a revolver. Then he walked to the German embassy and asked to speak with an official there, a Nazi named Ernst vom Rath. Herschel was allowed inside, and when he came into vom Rath's office, Herschel pulled the gun and fired five times, killing the man. He was arrested on the spot. In his pocket was a postcard to his parents that said, May God forgive me. I must protest so that the whole world hears. On the surface, and as reported by the media, this was the cold-blooded assassination of a German diplomat by a bloodthirsty Jew. But the complexity of real life can never be adequately expressed in short paragraphs and inverted pyramids. What the reporter didn't say was that Herschel knew Vomrath personally. They'd become friends after meeting at a cabaret called Le Boeuf sur le Toy, a popular hookup spot for homosexual men. The context was lost, and nobody cared. A Jew had killed a Nazi officer. The audacity. Hitler was at a fancy dinner party when he got the news of Vomrath's death. He skipped the dessert and had a little talk with his propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels. Hitler told Goebbels that he could never publicly authorize attacks against Jews. But if other people were to do so, nobody should try to stop them. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. That night, Nazi stormtroopers and the Hitler Youth Brigade attacked buildings owned by Jews all across Germany and Austria, and not just a couple. Over 7,500 Jewish shops were vandalized, their windows broken, the glass like crystal on the ground. 267 synagogues were destroyed on Kristallnacht. 30,000 Jews were arrested and taken to concentration camps. This was the beginning of the Holocaust, and the catalyst may well have been the fallout of a forbidden love affair that was misrepresented by the media in order to sell more copies, in order to stoke fear. Anyway, Gerbner. 
he got the fuck out of Dodge after that. When Gerbner got to the United States, he enrolled at Berkeley where he studied journalism. After graduating, he got a job as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. When the war in Europe broke out, he joined the army, parachuting behind enemy lines. He returned to the United States after the war, and you can imagine how that experience affected the thoughts churning around in his head. Add two parts Nazi propaganda, three parts Berkeley mass communication classes. Sprinkle in some war and voila, we get Gerbner's big idea, the mean world syndrome. Gerbner came to believe that violence on TV was screwing with our minds, making us think the world is more dangerous than it actually is, causing an epidemic of anxiety and fear. The basis for this mean world syndrome begins in Gerbner's theory of cultivation, which proposes that exposure to media over time cultivates a person's perception of reality, for good or bad. Gerbner recognized that the original form of mass media was religion. Like TV, church was a shared experience that taught us about notions of right and wrong, and it was made so everyone could understand it. Do you know why Catholic churches have stained glass window narratives? It's so even illiterate churchgoers can understand Bible stories. But in the 20th century, religion was replaced by TV. The flat screen became our altar of worship. And after time, we started to believe what we saw, the way we believed what we saw in those stained glass windows. So when we watch enough Law & Order SVU, we eventually start to believe our world is as heinous as the imaginary New York City that Stabler and Benson inhabit. How many homicides would you guess occurred in New York City in 2018? Maybe something like, I don't know, 2,245? That's a pretty big number, right? Kind of scary. Except that was the murder rate in New York 30 years ago. Since then, the number of homicides every year has fallen to around 289. There are 8.6 million people living in New York City. The chances of you being murdered in Manhattan are 0. .00003. How about them Big Apples? In Gerbner's words, whoever tells the stories of a culture really governs human behavior. That gatekeeper used to be the parent, the school, the church, the community. Now, it's a handful of global conglomerates that have nothing to tell, but a great deal to sell. Gerbner had witnessed the horrors of the Holocaust firsthand. He knew real horror. Then he came to the United States to find a country of free people terrified of their harmless neighbors because of the stories they watched on TV. How sad that must have been for him. What the hell did he fight for? In 1968, Gerbner created the Cultural Indicators Project, which collected data on over 3,000 television programs, as well as the viewing habits of the American public. What he found confirmed his worst fears. The more TV a person watches, the more likely they are to believe that they will become a victim of a crime. The more fearful they become. The data showed that people who watch TV more than three hours a day were likely to believe that nobody could be trusted. The programming reinforces the worst fears and apprehensions and paranoia of people, 
Gerbner said. When you look at the numbers, it's impossible to ignore how television portrays a more dangerous world than the one we really live in. Gerbner's team found that most children witnessed over 8,000 murders on television by the end of elementary school, 200,000 by the age of 18. The truth is, we're living in the safest era in human history, but we're too paranoid to appreciate it. Each year, the FBI tallies violent crimes reported to over 18,500 local jurisdictions across the United States. According to its latest report, violent crime has fallen 51% since its peak in the 90s. At the same time, public opinion polls show that most Americans believe crime is actually on the rise. Get this, an interesting discrepancy was found during a Gallup poll. The results showed that while Americans believe that crime in general is rising, they believe crime in their community is actually less common. Logically, we see that there is less crime around us, but because we watch so much TV, we still believe it must be going on somewhere. What we're talking about here is what's called a logical fallacy. What's a logical fallacy? I'm glad you asked. A fallacy is faulty reasoning used to support a certain belief. It's something philosophers and linguists talk about a lot, and it's helpful to know a few examples in order to recognize when your TV is lying to you. Also, it'll make you sound super smart. Considered a public service from Uncle James. Remember Socrates, that great big philosopher from ancient Greece, the one Bill and Ted kidnapped for that talent show? He introduced the Socratic method, you know, asking questions to tease out the universal knowledge that's inherent in each of us. Socrates had a pupil, Plato, right? Well, Plato had a student named Aristotle, who's very important and somebody you should know. So if Socrates was Qui-Gon Jinn, Plato is Obi-Wan, and that makes Aristotle Anakin. And he's trying to bring balance to the Force, uh, taking what he's learned from his mentors, but also being kind of a rebel at the same time. Luckily, Aristotle didn't embrace the, the dark side. In fact, Aristotle is known today as the father of Western philosophy. He tutored Alexander the Great, who ruled the world for a bit. He was a smart guy, is what I'm saying. Anywho, Aristotle wrote this book, Sophistical Refutations. Not the catchiest of titles, but important nonetheless. Remember, the sophists were these professional orators, people who got paid to argue a point, but who didn't really care about what the truth was so much as winning. They were kind of like the modern-day billboard attorneys. Socrates and his clan hated these guys. They were taking their linguistic, philosophical tricks and using them for personal gain. They were the Sith in this uh, weird analogy. Most people who listened to these sophists, these blowhards, would assume they knew what they were talking about because they spoke so confidently. But Aristotle realized that behind their clever words was just a bunch of bullshit. So he wrote this book so that people could educate themselves on the tricks of the sophists and not be fooled again. Sophists relied on logical fallacies in order to convince people they were right when really they were wrong. In sophistical refutations, Aristotle identified 13 fallacies. Other philosophers would expand on this, and there, there's probably hundreds of fallacies now, but this is where it all began. 
First, Aristotle divides fallacies into two distinct kinds. There are fallacies that use language and fallacies that do not use language. For instance, consider the fallacy of equivocation. This fallacy occurs when someone relies on ambiguous words that can have more than one meaning to try to persuade you. I'm stealing some examples here from the Department of Philosophy at Texas State University. Maybe some sophist wants to convince you that a warm beer is better than a cold beer. Gross, you say. But then the sophist replies, nothing is better than a cold beer. And yes, we, we can all agree on that. Then the sophist says, but a warm beer is better than nothing. Well, sure, I guess. So if nothing is better than a cold beer, and a warm beer is better than nothing, then it stands to reason that a warm beer is better than a cold beer. In this case, the ambiguity of the word nothing is what allows the sophists to convince us that warm beer is better than cold beer, which is ridiculous, especially if you're on a college budget and drinking Natty Light. My favorite example of equivocation is this old joke. One day a man has a conversation with God. God explains to him that one million years to me is a second. The man says, well, what about one million dollars, my lord? A penny, says God. To which the man says, may my lord give me a penny? To which God replies, of course, in just a second. Equivocation relies on language, but other fallacies rely on what is left unsaid. Secundum quid sounds like a spell you'd hear at Hogwarts, but it's actually a fallacy in which the speaker confuses a general truth with an exception to the rule. Example. A music reviewer ranking the best musicians of the last 100 years might list Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse, noting that they all died when they were 27, and write that the best musicians always die young. This, of course, is untrue when you consider Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Weird Al Yankovic. Here's a better example of secundum quid I found online. A man on the street says, Did you see that ambulance run that red light? Clearly people can drive any way they like around here. Another fallacy found in Aristotle's book is known as affirming the consequent. This occurs when a statement is made that is true, but is then used to support the converse of the statement, which may not be true. Example. If the lamp were broken, the room would be dark. Okay, we can all get behind that, right? But then some idiot says, the room is dark, therefore the lamp must be broken. Well, maybe the lamp is turned off. Maybe the bulb went out. I see this fallacy used a lot when arguing about the Maura Murray case. As you might recall, Maura Murray was a young nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 2004. One evening, she drove up into the White Mountains of New Hampshire and wrecked her car into a snowbank. Sometime between the accident and the time the first officer responded to the scene, a window of about seven minutes, she disappeared, never to be seen again. There are people online who say, serial killers abduct women all the time, and they're never seen again. There's no sign of Maura Murray, so she must have been taken by a serial killer. But of course, there's many explanations for what happened to Maura Murray. She could have hiked into the woods. She could have been picked up by a friend. She could have run away to start a new life. She could have made it to a cabin and been murdered later in the week. She could have committed suicide. The likelihood that a serial killer happened to drive by 
in those seven minutes is astronomically unlikely. In fact, it's another example that shows how people become illogical and afraid after watching crime shows on TV. They believe in a mean world where serial killers are driving by all the time, just waiting for the right opportunity. So why do people use logical fallacies? They do it to control your decisions, to control your behavior toward whatever agenda they have. George Gerbner died in 2005, before Facebook really caught on. But if he believed that long-term exposure to TV eventually leads to the delusion of a mean world, he'd surely recognized how social media accomplishes this even faster. One quick example. There's a fallacy called ad hominem, that's Latin for to the person. And it happens when someone attacks a speaker directly instead of attempting to disprove the argument. It's a way to win favor even if you're on the wrong side. You know who's really good at this kind of thing? The 45th president of the United States. Earlier this year, a 16-year-old autistic Swedish teenager named Greta Thunberg gave an impassioned speech to the United Nations that finally woke everyone up to the climate crisis we created. Donald Trump responded with a tweet. So ridiculous. Greta must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old-fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Greta. Chill. He couldn't refute the teen's facts, so he attacked her instead. Why? To control the narrative. We talked about his tweet way more than we talked about Greta's message, didn't we? When I was a teen, we didn't have social media. This was in the 90s. I lived out in the sticks in rural Ohio, and we didn't even have cable. We had three television stations, five if you use the UHF knob. But I have a sister who's 20 years younger than I am, and I saw how the mean world syndrome worked its way into apps. When I was in high school, the bullies stayed at school. You could avoid them. When she was in high school, the bullies followed her home, taunting her on Instagram and Facebook. There's no escape, and it's, it's so unrelenting, you begin to think that this is the real world. That there's strife and hate all around you. But it's not real. None of it. And even though it feels like it matters a lot when you're the target of it, it doesn't matter at all. Don't believe me? Unplug. Unplug for 24 hours. Leave your phone at home and take a walk in a park. Observe the world. That squirrel, it could give a shit if you looked weird in some Snapchat photo. That friendly dog doesn't know that your fly was undone during your speech in American history. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're not just some great achievement for connecting like-minded people. It's a do-it-yourself propaganda software given to you for free so that advertisers can target us with their own propaganda in order to make an extra dollar that day. Well, fuck that. Of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? As St. Augustine said, make me chase, O Lord, but, but not yet, N not yet. I've got a podcast to sell, and I need social media to tell you about it. It's a podcast about crime and my message is contrary. The world is not mean. Most people are nice. You're in no danger right now, and probably won't be tomorrow. Look around you, enjoy this world. Be grateful for your friends and family. This is not a mean world. 
If you think it is just because you watch shows about murder every night, then you're one of those people who see an ambulance and think everybody must drive crazy. That kind of reasoning is a fallacy. Believe in a better world. Delete Twitter. Delete Facebook. But first, please like and subscribe. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, Wooden Dice That Give an Artful Twist to Your Gaming Night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.